Mina Montessario wonders if she might be losing her mind. From the moment she leaves the rookery, every shadow she sees seems to conceal a threat. Every person she passes seems to glance at her for just a moment too long. She has no idea how the visitor knows so much about her, or whether the whisperer wants her dead, and that uncertainty gives rise to wild speculation. Is she being followed? Are there spies at every street corner? Is she being observed with scrying magics? Fear, loss and exhaustion feed her growing sense of paranoia. She crisscrosses the city, using every trick she knows to shake any possible tale, though at no time does she spot anyone obviously following her. Eventually, she finds herself far below the city surface. The air is warmer here, so close to the underpipes. She stands outside an inn that she stayed at once before, many years ago, a place called the Missing Link. It is lost down here, in the shadows beneath towering spires and the suspended walkways, forgotten by a city that has grown up around it, abandoned by all but the desperate and the rats. The place is long past its best, run down and tired, but that suits her just fine. It looks like she feels. She's fallen far, and she's fallen fast, but perhaps this is the place where she can start the climb back. She secures a room from the diminutive innkeeper, and when she's finally alone, leaning with her back to the door, she fishes out the manila folder. Time to find out what the visitor was so keen to get in front of the whisperer. She opens the folder, and the world explodes. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Mina found her home invaded by a mysterious visitor. This man knew far more than should have been possible, both about her and her spymaster, the Whisperer. Leveraging this knowledge, as well as the very real risk that Mina's recent misadventures might lead to her disappearance at the hands of her own house, the visitor attempted to blackmail Mina into feeding the Whisperer false information. But Mina proved to be made of sterner stuff. She cleared her home, fashioned an arcane weapon, and chose her own path. In defiance of both the visitor and her spymaster, she would go it alone. A hardly used mythic in the last scene of the previous chapter. 
As required by the mythic rules, I did consult it at the start of the scene to see if that scene would be altered, and it turned out it was. I decided that the alteration would refer to the visitor's throwaway gag about the strongbox. Turns out it wasn't a gag, and he really did know all about Mina's strongbox under the loose floorboard, filled with all her life savings. Whatever they actually turn out to be, there's nothing to say that the pistol was the only thing in that box. Now that must have rattled her. The fact that the box had been found meant that the introduction of the pistol lay in the GM's hands. It was possible that the visitor had taken it, and so that required a roll. Thankfully, it had been left in place, and Mina was able to use one of her magical infusions on it. For her second infusion, she replicated a bag of holding. Mina took a degree of control back in this clearing of the rookery scene. She bounced back from a series of unimaginable setbacks, and she made a plan. Her reward? The chaos factor goes down to seven. It's not much, but it's going to have to do. Mina's vision returns, blurry at first. Her head is ringing, and she is lying, she notices, slumped against the wall on the opposite side of the room. Fragments of charred paper flutter down around her like arsonist's confetti. She hears dull thumping, coming as if from far away. Then the door to her room opens, and the gnome innkeeper, Celia, is standing in the doorway, yelling and gesticulating furiously. Not that Mina can hear a word she's saying, her head continues to ring like a struck bell. Eventually, with patience, remorse, and the promise of no future mishaps, Mina is able to calm the furious innkeeper and send her on her way. That leaves her with the smouldering remnants of the folder to clear up, which offer her scant clues as to the contents. She had been lucky. The warding glyph on the folder cover had flared into life just an instant before it detonated, giving her time to avoid the full brunt of the blast. That, combined with her armoured coat, had probably spared her life. Idiot, she chastises herself. Why hadn't she checked the thing for magical properties? She is way off her A-game. She knows it. She's not thinking clearly, and the events of the last 24 hours have definitely affected her far more than she'd realised. She lays back on the bed, mind swimming with questions and concerns. Was the folder really intended as false intel? Or could it have been an assassination attempt intended for the Whisperer? No, she decides. Any half-competent house agent would have checked the thing for protective spells. The warding glyph had almost certainly been placed for verisimilitude, intended to make it look like a genuine secret document stolen from the cultists. Her one possible route to learning more about the visitor. Gone. She could speculate as to his identity, of course. He could represent the covert wing of any number of houses. Fargale, perhaps? Toreth? Amberon? Or he could be aligned with a criminal faction, or maybe even one of the guilds. Without evidence, that's all it is. Speculation. Short of asking a lot of questions... She has no way to track him back to his organisation, and asking a lot of questions is a surefire way to get herself noticed, which right now is the very last thing she wants to do. Too many questions, and too few answers.
That night, Mina dreams. She's running at night, a lone presence on deserted streets. Dark, monolithic buildings tower on either side. Behind her, growing inexorably closer, come the steady, rhythmic thumps of metal on earth, lumbering, featureless figures of brass and chrome twice her height. She tries to run faster, but there's something wrong with her legs. They seem to be encased in heavy iron boots that grow heavier with every step. She's slowing now. No matter how hard she tries, her momentum deserts her until she's left, stationary, her enemies closing in. She finds herself sat, a tiny figure at a huge desk, in a classroom that seems to extend endlessly in all directions. Every other seat is empty. A black-garbed teacher, impossibly tall and thin, scribbles at a chalkboard, mapping out a spider's web of profoundly meaningful connections. But she's forgotten her spectacles, and everything is blurred. Open your folder and start to read, the teacher commands. But there's something wrong with her folder, and it won't open. Panicking, she tries to force it to open, but it crumbles to dust in her hands. I'm sorry, Mina cries. It's gone! But the teacher turns their face a blank mask and raises a finger to the place where their lips should be. No running in the pool area. And Mina is sinking, drowning the water's surface, a receding rectangle of faint light as her lungs fill and darkness consumes her. She wakes, gasping, sweat cold against her skin, the room still dark. Her pounding heart starts to slow. Dreams can't hurt you, she tells herself. It's just in your head. A chair scrapes against the floorboards, and a seated figure leans forward. My darling little Mina, don't you know that the things that hurt you most are the ones in your head? Mina's blood turns to ice. Daddy? But you're dead. I saw you die. As her eyes adjust to the pale moonlight, she can see the ragged hole in her father's torso and the rotted flesh clinging to his skull. People die, my darling Mina, he says sadly, whether you see them or not. The door opens, and a corpse, burned almost beyond recognition, stumbles into the room. It is followed by another and another. Still they come, men, women, children, each blackened and blistered by fire. A shuddering sob of terror and guilt escapes Mina's lips as the burned dead press in around her, silent accusal in their eyes. Her father stands, and moonlight shines through the hole where his stomach should be. It shines on the crumbling pillars of a ruined mausoleum shrouded in fog. She is drawn towards it, finding herself running once more, this time between starkly carved statues of the great and the gone. She feels her pursuers drawing closer, but her feet are sinking into the earth and she can't move. All around her, silent figures emerge from the gloom. As one, they throw back their cowls, revealing featureless metal masks. They close in on her 
brass claws extended, chanting in unison. You cannot escape the Exxon machine. And then she's awake, tangled and shaking in her bedsheets, dawn's early light filtering down through to the Undercity and in through her bedroom window. And she knows what to do. Goodness, but that went to some dark places. We had two scenes for the price of one there. The first was pretty short, and then the second seemed to flow from it quite naturally. In both cases, but particularly with the first, the mythic scene alteration rules played a big part in shaping how things played out. For example, the explosion scene didn't start out as an explosion scene. I'd just planned to have Mina find a safe haven where she could gather some clues, but once again, my GM had other ideas in store. I rolled a scene alteration, and lacking inspiration for what to change, I asked an event question. The response was pretty clear to me. Attach weapon. I had been thinking about the folder, and in that context, attach weapon could only mean one thing. I did give Mina a chance to avoid triggering the explosion, as well as chances to gather clues or to identify what magics might be in play. None of those chances succeeded, in large part because Mina still has two levels of exhaustion. In addition to having her move speed halved, all her ability checks are being made at disadvantage. I then asked if she would be able to manage a long rest, and although I rated this as likely, the GM said no. Inquiry as to why revealed the reason to be dominate the spiritual. This sounded like her rest might be getting disrupted, perhaps by nightmares, but I wasn't sure about that, so I asked the GM, who provided confirmation. Time for a dream scene. The explosion scene clearly didn't play out in Mina's favour, and she was not in control, so the chaos factor rose once again to an 8. And then for the nightmare scene. For this, I looked back at everything Mina had endured in the previous sessions, and from that created a D8 table of themes that she might dream about. Once again, when I started play, Mythic indicated that the scene was altered. So rather than changing things up too much, I decided she would wake from one nightmare, only to find herself in another. That meant four rolls on the nightmare table instead of my plan two, re-rolling any repeats. As usual, all the details are in the show notes. I'm pretty happy with how the nightmare turned out, despite it being by far the darkest the game has got to this point. I'd vaguely touched upon her father in a previous scene, and so I included the theme of bereavement in the nightmare generator options. And I'm glad I did. It was interesting to learn something more about him in this session, and for his appearance to have such an impact on Mina. The game mechanics provided the broad brushstrokes, and then I added some finer detail on top. Introducing little snippets of Mina's backstory like this, without having any idea at all of where it all might be leading, is a fascinating journey for me, and I hope an interesting one for you too. She certainly seems to be carrying her share of tragedy from her past, and I am looking forward to exploring it. I'd been a bit concerned that the impact of a whole city quarter burning down had been a bit underplayed up to this point. So, to experience Mina's subconscious playing those events back to her, 
and seeing that they were not without consequence was satisfying. Of course, the fire in the spot exists as one of the list threads, so the mythic mechanics may well reintroduce the consequences of that event at some point in the future. On the topic of the mythic lists, after rereading the mythic book, I've realised I've been handling these slightly wrong. Rather than list any story theme that comes along, the book suggests that the threads should be phrased as PC goals or objectives, and so I've reworded my thread list as follows. Track down the cultists. Make amends for the fire in the spot. Explain the explosion in the sky. Resolve a trouble with the whisperer and understand inter-house espionage. And in addition, I've added the following. Track down the visitor and come to terms with father's death. I was a bit torn on the chaos factor following the nightmare scene. On the one hand, Mino was not in control, as her subconscious mind played back all her troubles and her fears. But on the other hand, I do think there was some degree of growth amid the terror. A deeper understanding reached of herself, if not her circumstances, and clarity achieved over what to do next. For that reason, I've decided to reduce the chaos factor to seven for the next scene, though I think a case could easily be made the other way. Lastly, I wanted to touch on something that's only really become apparent to me over the course of these first few episodes of The Lone Adventurer. As I've settled into the pattern of creating this story, I've realised it's as much a creative writing exercise and sort of how-to-play guide as it is a game. Frankly, that's probably blindingly bloody obvious to you as a listener, but it's taken a few episodes for that to truly sink in for me, and for me to understand the balance between the three. Solo RPGs can be played and presented in many different ways, and the way I'm playing and presenting this game is just one among many. The guidance I'm providing is less how to play solo RPGs and more how to play this solo RPG. Regardless, I hope you're finding the journey both entertaining and informative, and that you're enjoying this at least half as much as I am. Okay, that's enough navel-gazing. On to the next scene. Over the course of the next two days, Mina's threadbare room is transformed. The contents of her extra-dimensional box are gradually disgorged across every spare inch of floor and wall space, and the rickety dressing table is repurposed as a makeshift workbench. Seated there, she works long, long hours, crafting an array of esoteric gadgets and tools in preparation for what lies ahead. She has a sense of purpose now, and she feels her equilibrium returning. She fashions a cuff from brass and steel that she slips over her left forearm. With one or two final adjustments, the series of inscribed symbols circling the object begin to glow blue with eldritch power. She spends most of the second day working on the jumble of connected tubes, cables and steel rods that had been hanging from the beams of the rookery. Laid out fully, it's apparent that this is in fact a bipedal figure, some form of clockwork automata loosely fashioned in the image of a man. Showers of sparks reflect in her machinist's goggles as she attaches first one intricately fashioned mechanical hand and then the other. At long last, she's ready. Everything is in place, all spells are laid. Her greatest work 
her wildest leap of technological innovation. She's been tinkering with this thing for months, building on ideas that have been gestating for years. And now, at last, it's the moment of truth. She winds the great brass cog in the automaton's chest once, twice, three times, sufficient for at least 24 hours of animation by her calculations. Taking a deep breath, Mina triggers the control runes and activates her creation. The body jerks, stiffens, and then the side of the metal head explodes in a shower of springs, sparks and cogs. No, 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 damn it all, what did I miss? Mina cries, grabbing the metal body as it topples towards her. She lays it down on the floor, almost tenderly. I'm sorry, Scraps. I'll get you working, I promise. But she's out of time, and she knows it. A day or two to recover and let the worst of the immediate heat die down is one thing. But the longer she waits, the colder the trails are growing, and the more time the visitor has to set his plans in motion, whatever they may be. Enough preparing. It's time to act. This particular experiment will just have to wait. She leaves Celia with enough money to cover a week's rent in advance, though it leaves her remaining funds precariously low. Then she heads back, out into the city. There's one last thing she must do before she sets her plan in motion. A risk, but one, on balance, that she is willing to take. She makes her way to the dead drop site at the Imperial Consort Memorial Fountain in the Gilded Gardens her direct link to the Whisperer, known only to the two of them, at least to the best of her knowledge. If there is any chance of getting information through to him undetected, this is it. Of course, the Whisperer may have his own agents hidden here, just waiting to arrest her, or worse. But whatever else the Whisperer may be, she knows him not to be rash or hasty. If he wants her dead, then it will happen, but perhaps it's more likely that what he wants from her is information. She sits on a bench, welcoming the afternoon sun on her face, enjoying the simple pleasure of watching passers-by take their constitutionals. She opens the newspaper she bought on the way here and scans the classified advertisements for coded messages. Nothing. That just leaves the drop, then. However, she does notice one story of interest. It seems as though the airship explosion has been pinned squarely on the cult of the great machine. There is no mention of her involvement at all. Not something, at least. When she is comfortable, she is unobserved. She slips her fingers under the park bench, and she is rewarded with a tiny, folded slip of paper. She leaves, surreptitiously tucking it into the lining of her coat sleeve, and only when she is truly alone does she open it. The small note simply reads report. So much conveyed in a single word. So much suppressed emotion released. She puts her hand to her mouth, momentarily overwhelmed with relief. In her spymaster's eyes, she is still active. At least until he knows what she knows. How to tell him, when his whole organisation appears to be compromised is a problem she will have to consider later. For now, she drops a message of her own, also just a single word, 
pending. She dots the I below the stroke instead of above, indicating a threat prevents immediate compliance. She wishes there was a way to convey more information safely, but for now, it's the best she can do. Right now, she has a more pressing engagement. It's time to go back to the place she first picked up the machine cultist's trail. It's time to return to the necropolis of the Yellow Priests of Bran. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I'll include any links mentioned there, as well as my interactions with the mythic GM emulator and any other mechanics information. Mina's story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.